Well, we're beginning a new series this morning, and uh, for the next several weeks, for um, in, stretching into the new year, we're going to crack the letter of Galatians that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia that he helped plant. That's modern-day Turkey. And, uh, and so these are churches that Paul loves. He helped plant them, and we have several letters in our canon um, that, uh, uh, that Paul wrote to, to churches, and all of them take on kind of different forms. Some of them are more encouraging. Some of them are more instructive. Uh, this letter, I would say, is probably best described as a letter of concern. And that actually might be putting it lightly. That it would be a letter of grave concern uh, or a letter of confrontation might be more on the nose. It's one of, I think, if not the, uh, most confrontational letters that Paul writes to a church. What is he confronting? Uh, well, the premise of this whole letter, and one of the reasons that I, I, uh, I want to dig into this with you, is because it is confronting people that claimed that Paul, when he planted the church, wasn't preaching the whole gospel when he taught them that salvation or right standing with God is a gift of God's through faith in Jesus Christ by grace and grace alone. And that's what he is challenging here in, in, the, in, in this letter. So Paul has his work really cut out for him. What he has to do is he has to reteach them exactly what the gospel is and what it isn't. And he also has to assert himself as a credible voice or credible authority over the gospel in these matters over against. He's got to tell them why they should listen to him over against these influential but false teachers that are at work in the church of Galatia. And we'll see he begins to make this argument immediately, even in the greeting of his letter. So let's look together as Paul, who doesn't waste a word, <laughs> get started in this letter to, uh, to Galatians. And I opened up to Ruth, but I need to be in Galatians. Here we go. Galatians 1, I'll read the first nine verses. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, much like the uh, early church in Galatia arranged themselves under the authority of this letter, I pray that you would help us to do that too. That you would help us to hear from it, to be instructed by it, to be convinced again of the story of your gracious sufficiency of your sacrifice, Lord Jesus. 
And I pray that you would help us to hear from it, to learn from it, uh, to talk well about it. And I pray that you would help me, your servant, to honor you and to love these people well with the words that I say over these next few moments. I pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so one of the vacations that um, Shonda and I remember most fondly was several years ago. Uh, Gavin was three months old, and Trent was about two and a half, and uh, a family who had uh, a lake house just invited us to go stay there and relax together for about a week, and I was quite excited about this because it turned out that the fishing at this lake was really quite good. Um, whenever a fisherman says it was, if the fishing's good, that means it was easy, okay? So the fishing was really, really good. And they also had this small little pontoon boat that they were happy for us to use. And so every afternoon, uh, we would go to a part of the lake where I could let down the anchor where, you know, it would hold us steady. And uh, we would sit out on this boat and, uh, and just kind of enjoy a clear, sunny day with a cool breeze and uh, feel the, the, the water move and just enjoy being with each other for a little while. It was the most relaxing thing. And, uh, but we, one of the things I noticed that was that Trent, who was just two and a half, was uh, pretty nervous being on this boat, which makes sense because he, was, he had never been on a boat before. He, he didn't know how to swim. And so even though he was totally safe in a life jacket and with a railing, that he was kind of, he had this like surfer's pose in the middle, you know, in the center of the boat so that every time it rocked a little bit, he was trying to hold himself steady. And so I thought one of the, you know, just to make him more comfortable and maybe build a little trust, um, I would jump in the water. So I like just randomly jumped over the railing into the water, treading water, freaking Trent out entirely. Like, Daddy, what are you doing? And I said, Trent, why don't you you join me? Come on down. Uh, Jump in with me. You're wearing a life jacket. You're completely safe, and I'm here. So come in. And it was so sweet because, you know, there's a moment. uh, You know what's going on in a child's head when they're trying to make the decision if they can trust you or not. You know, that's what I'm talking about. And Trent took a little while, but he decided that he was going to kind of inch his way down a ladder step by step. Instead of just jumping in, he was going to kind of one step at a time make his way down, and Shonda was helping him. And then what happened next, I'll never forget. He just kind of turned and let go of the boat with a flourish and with a smile on his face, just kind of fell in my arms in the water. It's one of my favorite favorite moments of his childhood. And uh, I'll never forget that. And I'll also never forget what happened next. Because all of a sudden, not, not a minute later, maybe less than a minute later, Trent and I noticed that the boat was drifting away from us. That the, the anchor had slipped off the ground and the wind had picked up and Shonda was now, we were adrift in the water, and Shonda was drifting away from us down the lake, far away from where we could be. Trent was safe in a life jacket. Uh, I was not wearing a life jacket because I was an idiot. And, uh, and so the wind is blowing. Trent realizes right away that we're in danger, and he's crying. And, and I had operated this boat. Shonda hadn't driven the boat yet. So I am now shouting over the wind to, uh, to, to give Shonda some instructions about what it would look like to drive the boat back to pick us up and get us out of the water and make us safe again. And that was incredible. It was like we moved from a sweet moment to a dangerous moment all at once. And you know what I learned? I learned that anchors are really important. <laughs> 
I learned that kind of what holds you steady, everything about that sweet moment that Trent and I had, we didn't, even though we didn't know it at the time, completely relied on that anchor's ability to keep that boat steady while we were in the water. And we were in sudden danger as soon as that anchor slipped. Paul is writing a letter, and you even get the confrontational kind of heaviness of this letter immediately. You get a sense of Paul's passion to a church that he feels whose anchor has slipped. And he's, he's worried about them. He's concerned for their welfare. He's hearing reports about false teaching, about teachers that are teaching something that's contrary to the gospel message that he had delivered to them. And, he, and so what he does is he writes a letter that serves as a kind of wake-up call. And in this passage, what I see are really three different calls that constitute the wake-up call that Paul issues here. And I think at first we see a call to listen. And then we see a call to remember. And then we see a call to return. So that's what I'm going to talk about as I make my way through this, is a call to listen, a call to remember, and a call to return. So first, there's this call to listen. And like I noted earlier, Paul's got to make the argument for why they need to listen to him over and against false teachers that are, that are there with them in the church in Galatia. And, uh, and so that's why he begins this greeting on a really heavy note. Paul is already immediately uh, inserting his credentials as a credible authority on the matters of the gospel. And so he says, this is why you should listen to me. Why should we listen to Paul? Well, first, because when Paul speaks, he speaks with what we call apostolic authority. That's what he's claiming here in verse 1. Paul, look at how he introduces himself. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. This is a big deal. Not many people can make this claim that when they speak and when they move and when they act, they're doing so with apostolic authority. The, the Greek word apostolos simply means sent. And so Paul is saying, I was sent to you by none other than Jesus Christ. And there were very few people, there were very few men that could claim uh, that kind of apostolic authority. They, these were people who spent time with Jesus that learned directly from Jesus. They, uh, they received his teaching directly face-to-face with Jesus. And that Jesus sent or commissioned them to bring his gospel message into all the world as a sort of mission. And there are very few people that can actually make that claim. And we see examples of, uh, we see this, the testimony of Paul's interchange with, with the risen Jesus in two places in, in Acts, in Acts 9 and Acts 22. And so when Paul comes, he's coming with a kind of divine commission. And then we also see that he's coming with a sense of human accountability. Look in verse 2. It says, he includes, and all the brothers who are with me. And Paul is saying that he alone isn't the only one who's concerned about the welfare of the people of the Galatian church but that there are other uh, brothers, other Christ followers who are with him who share these concerns. This this is really important because there were people in this church that had a chance to review what Paul is writing, who had a chance to decide if they wanted to attach their name to it. 
and, uh, and decided to go ahead and do that. So Paul is operating. He comes in really heavy right at the beginning of this letter. And he says, I am coming to you as someone who has a divine commission. And I'm coming to you uh, with, with a sense of human accountability and human authority. And it occurs to me, and so you should listen to me over against these other people. And it occurs to me as I look at this, just how humbling it might have been for the church in Galatia to receive something like this. Like in general, when somebody comes in heavy right at the beginning, inserting their own authority in a matter, that, can, that might make us a little reluctant to embrace them. I think that was true for Galatians, the people in Galatians. It was probably, it's, it, just as it is true for us. But there are certain places where we're more ready to receive authority like that. And usually it comes when it's a matter of life and death. When I was a teenager, uh, that was when I I spent a few years learning to rock climb and uh, really enjoyed that time. And I think it's pretty safe to say that I was a pretty self-determined kid. That's what my parents tell me anyway. But like any, I I was really suspicious of any authority figure I came across, teachers, coaches, uh, whatever, pushing the, the boundaries of freedom whenever I had the chance. But, uh, but when I was learning to rock climb, it, we had this instructor and there were a number of us teenagers. And this guy came in really, really heavy. And he, he started telling us exactly what he knew, exactly what we needed to know, know, why we needed to know it. He was incredibly particular because rock climbing is an incredibly dangerous sport, Right? That when you're offering a belay for somebody, you're, like everything matters. The way you tie your knots and you rig your safety gear. When you're, when you're the safety for somebody, their life is in your hands. And you know what? We knew that. So we received his authority. And so what I want you to understand is that that's, that's what this is for Paul. That for Paul, understanding the gospel for exactly what it is, is nothing less than a matter of life or death for Paul. It's gravely serious. And so he moves from this call to listen to begin to remind them of the gospel message that he brought to them when he first planted that church. This is the call to remember. And and if you're ever, this is, what follows is just an unbelievably beautiful summary of the core gospel truths in verses three through five. If you're ever looking for like a summary of what the gospel is and what the gospel isn't, then come back to these verses. We've got these clauses, these few clauses in a row where, where Paul begins to unpack um, what the gospel is and very, he'll unpack it more as the letter goes on. But he's saying this is the foundation of what the gospel is. Each one of these has a core gospel truth. Look with me here. First, he calls them to remember what Jesus has done. He says... Jesus gave himself for our sins. And he's using transactional nature to describe what happened when Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, paying the debt of, of this, that our sins have rung up. That's a core gospel truth. That all those who, who, uh, who have faith in Jesus are trusting that his sacrifice is sufficient to pay the debt we owe because of our rebellion with God. 
That's the forensic nature of the gospel, that it, that it is that and that alone, that, he off, that there was a grand exchange being made between the Son and the Father and that, the, that we benefit from through faith. And so that's the first gospel truth, is that Jesus took our place on the cross, that he died the death that we deserve. And when he did that, all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for, have been redeemed. This is mercy itself, that Jesus stood in our place. So he tells us to remember what Jesus has done, but then he tells us to remember what Jesus accomplished. Look further. The next thing he says is he did it to deliver us from the the present evil age. The gospel story is a story of deliverance. You know how else you could say that? The gospel story is a story of rescue. That, That Jesus rescues us, not just from our sins, but the sins of the world, from our captivity to the sins of the world. Um, Look, I don't need a financial advisor to tell me that debt is captivity. And we feel that, don't we? And then when we pay off our debt, well, that, that feels like freedom. But when somebody else pays off our debt, what is that? That's rescue. And that's what he's telling us, a core gospel truth, is that the gospel story of what Jesus did on our behalf is a story of rescue. And so he tells us what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, and then he tells us why Jesus did it. Look at the next phrase. According to the will of God our Father. We have got to get this into our heads. That the only reason that Jesus did what he did is because he wanted to. That God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead, put their heads together and decided there was nothing about our captivity that they were okay with. And so the core gospel truth number three is that the story of redemption that Jesus accomplishes is at its heart a love story. It's a story of love. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, has died for me? And so he tells us what Jesus did, what it accomplished, and why he did it. And what he's doing is he's laying down the foundation for the, the, he, he is laying down the foundation of the gospel itself for these people in Galatia, reminding them of what they first believed. And foundations are important, aren't they? Uh, several years ago, my brother-in-law, Shonda's brother, his name is Ben, uh, was putting an addition on his house. And uh, Ben's a really handy guy. He's a guy that guys like me are kind of jealous of because there's so much they can do. Like his world doesn't come apart when something's wrong with his house, you know. And so he did a lot of this work of the addi- on the addition, but there are a few things that like only a professional should do. And one of those is to lay a concrete foundation for, for the addition. And so he, he brings out a contractor 
to, and, you know, shows him the plans, and he draws it up, and he puts the rebar down, and he comes out with the concrete, and he lays it down, and after it dries, they tested it to see how strong it was, and apparently this contractor had gotten the, the mixture of the concrete wrong, and so it was actually much weaker than it needed to be in, in order to support the structure that they wanted to build on it. And so that led to, and I'm sure many of us have these stories, that led to a long back and forth between my brother-in-law and this contractor trying to get him to come out and redo the whole thing. And, uh, and it was just this big, long story. And eventually, this contractor made the mistake of asking my brother-in-law why in the world he was being so particular about this whole thing. And Ben said, he said, the foundation is the most important piece of this whole project. If we can't get this right, then everything, then everything else is going to fall apart. And that's what we see in this passage is that... Paul is saying, this is the foundational truths that root the gospel that Christ's church is rooted on. And everything we teach has to be able to trace its roots to these three things. Every thread of teaching. And so Paul begins to speak incredibly strong here in verse 6 about because he's concerned that they have lost sight of these foundational truths of the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. So what he does is he issues a call to return. Look at verse 6. He says, I am astonished. What's he astonished about? That they are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's the core issue that drives the writing of this letter. And you can feel, you can see he feels really strongly about what he's saying because twice in verses eight and nine, he says, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that we deliver to you, the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. He's calling down damnation on those who would preach a different gospel. It doesn't get any more serious than that. And look, the more you read Paul, um, I, I just think there's no escaping the idea that Paul's a pretty passionate guy. <laughs> like, he, he feels very strongly. He speaks very strongly. But I don't think there's anything in Paul's writing that gets him uh, riled up. Like when he's contending with teachers, false teachers, who presume to have a corner on what the gospel is and are teaching a different gospel. To Paul, that any other gospel than what he delivers is actually no gospel at all. And so he's speaking to people who are deserting the gospel of grace, and he's calling them to return. He, he, he calls them to return. He's absolutely uncompromising when it comes to this, because what he says is that they're deserting grace. Because to, to Paul, to, to impregnate the message of grace with anything else is to desert grace entirely. What he's saying is that salvation by grace and grace alone cannot coexist with anything else. To add anything to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, anything other than the wonderful grace of God, is to, say, is to nullify grace entirely. That grace can't coexist with salvation by any other means. That, and listen, the wonder of the gospel is that it is all about what has happened in the past. 
Did you notice the past tense of this? That it was Christ who loved us, Christ who gave himself for us, Christ who rescued us. All of, this, all of these are things that have already been accomplished in full on your behalf. And Christ did it all. There's nothing about this message that he gives that says that we do, the, 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 the story of the gospel that's so amazing, that almost sounds too good to be true, is that Christ did everything. And we contributed nothing to our salvation, that he rescued us, that we were helpless, and he came for us. The story of the gospel is that we are rescued first, then we follow him, not the other way around. And to to leave that story, to add anything else into that, that we have to contribute to our own salvation, is is to walk away from the beautiful message of grace. And he says, when you desert grace, you also desert freedom. The freedom that Christ invites you to live with. The, the irony of this whole story is that Christ, or Paul comes in strongly inserting his own authority all to remind them of the freedom that they have because of what Jesus has done for them. And to to resubmit yourself to something outside of grace that, that, that you need to actually maintain or sustain in order to work out your salvation is to is to resubmit yourself to captivity, according to Paul. Paul will say later that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What was the issue? What were these false teachers teaching? What was it that was so big that got Paul all riled up? Well, what they had were, uh, they had people, we call them Judaizers. And we'll unpack this as, as in the following weeks. But the, the, the Galatian church was uh, was was dealing with the wonderful problem of growth. That the, many of the followers of Christ when the church was planted were, were Jewish Christians, were people with Jewish heritage who grew up um, in, in Jewish families with Jewish ceremonial traditions and, uh, and, then came, and then came to faith in Christ. But over time, the church began to receive people of Gentile heritage, their neighbors, in Turkey, and Galatia, were, were actually coming to faith in Christ and coming into the church. And so this church was experiencing a lot of division. And, and these Judaizers were teaching that you need more than the grace of Christ, that now you need to also submit to the Jewish dietary laws, and, and you need to submit to circum, uh, circumcision and other things that mark you out that, that actually solve the disunity we're experiencing because of our different backgrounds. They were teaching a message that was your right standing with God is sustained by grace plus these other things. That's what they were saying. They, were tra- they believed that grace existed, but they thought unity was found by their works, by how they appeared together. And Paul is saying no. To impose anything alongside grace is to desert grace and to, to, to desert freedom. And that our unity is found exclusively and what Jesus Christ did, what he accomplished for us, and, and, what he, and, and, and the way that he feels about us.
And you might think this sounds crazy. But we do this all the time. There are ways that we think grace isn't enough. There are ways that we construct little safety nets of behavior that actually mark us out as especially godly, as having contributed to our own, uh, our own behavior or our own right standing before God. We do this all the time. And we would be missing an opportunity to study this book and not think about what those things are. I'll put it this way. Usually the ways that we're most susceptible to deserting grace is in the same place where we are the most judgmental. The place where we are the most proud. The, the place where we think we've got a corner on what it looks like or what right, right behavior looks like. And in our pride, Jesus is waving at us and he's saying, come back. Return to me. He's saying, come back to me. My grace is sufficient for you. Come back. And I think that's of all the things Paul wants for this church is for them to come back, to enjoy the freedom that knowing Jesus brings. There's a story in John chapter 6 where Jesus challenges some of the people that were with him. They were called disciples. It was a crowd of disciples. And he challenged them with a, te- with a, with a hard teaching. And many of them were offended and they left him. They, they deserted him. And he turns to the 12 disciples and he says, are you going to stay with me too? Or are you going to leave me? And Peter looks at him and I can almost hear the incredulity in his voice when he says, where else would we go? You have the words of life. And that's my hope for us. As a church, that as we, as we look at this book together, that we will embrace the ways Paul is changing this church and changing ourselves by grace, that we will be a people who look at these words that one of Jesus' apostles give to the church and says the same thing, that where else would we go? We exist together, we coexist together under the common banner of Jesus' grace. Where else would we go? These are the very words of life. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Where else will we go? You have called us to yourself. You have given us grace. You have invited us to freedom. You have loved us. I pray, Lord, that we would get a sense that there is nowhere that we need to hide. There is no more shame. There is no more fear. There is only you and trusting you and leaning into the life that you called us to. Would you give us that hope? Would you give us that that courage, hope that grace invites us into? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.